Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and the interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. I would absolutely agree that teaching is the best form of learning. And when you help somebody else, you help yourself. Make time for what you love and care less about what other people think, because that really can hold us down. And we don't really know what other people think. I am through and through a pessimist, at least when I wake up. And I realized that what turned me into an optimist was design process. It's my profession because design is all about solving problems. And when you solve problems, you become an optimist. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 53 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the show as it was recently included in the Apple Podcast Career Move section. For any new listeners, please connect on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. It does make such a difference. Now back to the show. Aisha Bursell is one of the world's leading industrial designers. Her work can be found in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. She has helped thousands of people across the globe transform their lives by teaching them how to solve life's problems using design. Her goal is to improve 10 million lives through her movement, Design the Life You Love. She is one of the most creative people in business, according to Fast Company. She is recognized as the number one coach for life design by Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. She coaches individuals, entrepreneurs, corporations, and communities on how to design their life and work. Her new book, Design the Long Life You Love, was published in December of 2022 and is a great read. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you. It's so good to be here, Harsha. Lovely that you can join us from New York. So, Aisha, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performance, song, book or film which you'd like to share with us today? You're making me think of The Creative Habit. Twyla Thorpe's amazing book that helped me create my creative habit. So that's the one that comes to my mind. And it's co-authored by a dear friend of mine, Mark Ryder. And when I first started reading The Creative Habit, I knew of Twyla Thorpe and her beautiful work, but I didn't know Mark Ryder. So I met him years later and then made the connection that one of my dear friends is also the author of one of my favorite books. Oh, I just love that story. And it's funny because I didn't used to like ballet. And then I saw a dancer, I don't know if you've ever come across her, called Sylvie Guillem. She's a French ballet dancer and she used to be one of the best dancers in the world. And I saw a TV documentary about her. And I didn't get ballet before that, but just by watching her move, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I have to watch her dance live. And it's amazing when you see somebody, even though I knew nothing about ballet, watching her dance, she was just amazing. And it's interesting, this whole idea of creativity, where does it come from and how people can appreciate it. Can you talk a little bit about your creative process? Because I believe that 
it's very much about putting the work in, doing the work, turning it up every day. So it's exactly that. My creative habit is to get up early in the morning, just something that doesn't come naturally to me. So I had to teach myself, but I found that there was value in working or thinking creatively before the day starts, before all the emails and the meetings while everybody else is sleeping. And so I get up, make a cup of tea, have a little cookie or something to motivate myself. And then I do my best work between like five, 5.30 and seven. And it's also good because my unconscious is awake, but I'm half asleep. And so I can't judge myself as much. And I find that very useful. I just love that. And I think sometimes people think creativity, you're just waiting around for that spark of genius. But actually, I think it's a lot about putting the work in, almost having a lot of at-bats, as Dory Clark talks about. You've just got to get the stuff out into the world. Yes, some of it might work, some of it might not. But sometimes it's, you're not the best judge of your own work. What do you think, Ashley? Well, you're making me think that intention and focus are really important. And I've been reading about meditation and how it's all about focus. And I think creativity is a form of meditation and it's all about focus. And I need to focus by like holding a pen in my hand and kind of connecting my brain and my hands and then ideas flow. And so if somebody thinks that they can just walk down the street and focus and have creative ideas, kudos to them. I just find that that's really hard to do. I just love that point. Going back to the beginning, I believe you were born in Izmir in Turkey. And it's funny, I spoke to one of my Turkish friends about Izmir. And unfortunately, he couldn't give me any insights at all. But when I said that I'm interviewing you, he said, oh, wow, she's that designer. So obviously you're well known. I am that designer, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he did say that in Turkey, you have a very interesting way of brewing tea. Is hot water on top or below or, or maybe he's, is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And Turkish people are tea drinkers. So, and I'm one of them. I drink tea all day long. Oh, yeah, I love tea. I, I'm not a coffee drinker at all. So I have to have at least two or three cups of tea a day. So talking about industrial design, because I think it was a, a childhood friend or friend of the family who got you interested down that path. So what made you interested in industrial design and how did you end up at Pratt? I come from a family of lawyers. And so that was my first career choice. And then I realized that I love to draw. So and I thought maybe I should do something a little bit more creative. So I was leaning towards architecture. And just like you said, a family friend came to tea. I was 15 years old. And he said, well, have you thought about industrial design? And I had never heard those two words together before. And he said, actually using, talking about tea. There we go. If you I, got, I got my mug as well. We're showing each other our teacups. So he said, this teacup was designed by someone and just curved so that it can fit our lips better. It has a handle so that we can hold hot liquid in our hands without burning ourselves. And the saucer is there because if you spill your tea, you won't ruin your mom's beautiful tablecloth. We use these products and we never think about these things that, you know, somebody put into that product. And I fell in love with that idea and the human scale of design. And I thought, I want to be that person. And then I did my undergraduate in Turkey at the Middle East Technical University in Ankara. And then I had a Fulbright to come to New York. 
and to do my graduate studies at Pratt. And it's funny because I knew Pratt was in New York, in, in Brooklyn, and I was trying to figure out where it was. So I looked at it on a map and I, and I saw that it was actually quite close to a place called Fort Greene. And I, I used to have some friends who lived in Fort Greene and it was, it's, it's quite a nice area, but I think that Pratt is in Bed-Stuy, is that right? Exactly. And it yes. used to be quite a tough neighborhood back in the day. So your poor parents must have been quite shocked by you going all the way there on your own. Absolutely. So yeah, now it's gentrified, but then Bedford-Stuy was the worst neighborhood. And of course, we didn't know. Yeah. And I came to Pratt. My parents were wonderful. They wanted to drop me off. and then. My dad wanted to buy me some flowers for my room, for my dorm room. And so he disappeared for like half an hour. And then when he came back, his face seemed all bent out of shape. And I was like, what happened? And he was like, this is a terrible neighborhood. And then they left me. And I think that was, they've always told me that that was like the hardest day for them. And one day I told them, and this was really not cool, but I said, and it was the best day of my life because I was in New York starting my design studies and really I was 20 years old and it just felt like at the edge of an amazing time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting when you're transitioning from, you know, you're getting independence, you're in a new city. And I suppose New York at that time, it was starting to, you know, obviously it was still a bit edgy, but then you had the whole gentrification process, a lot more money coming in. So it must have been a very exciting time to be in New York as a, a designer. What do you think, Archie? Oh, it was an amazing time. And Pratt had some amazing teachers. The chair of the department was Bruce Hanna, who to this day is an amazing designer and design thinker. Rowena Reed, who invented the idea of three-dimensional design and how to teach three-dimensional design. Like you would teach music. She really created this program. And I feel like they're my heroes. And I feel like I am trying to role model Rowena to this day of how to teach people how to think creatively and make that accessible, like a step-by-step -step program. The really interesting thing about teaching, and if you're trying to explain something to somebody else, is that Sure, you're passing your knowledge, but I do think that by having the ability to explain something, the knowledge is actually getting deeper into your own brain and actually you're creating new connections. So in a way, you're helping yourself by passing that knowledge on. I would absolutely agree that teaching is the best form of learning. And when you help somebody else, you help yourself, especially through COVID that has become kind of such a lesson and the lifesaver for me is that I continue to teach and the people I teach and help have become my great friends and my community. Oh, and by the way, for our listeners out there, Aisha does a virtual tea every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I actually was there a couple of evenings ago. I felt a bit bad and then telling people I was actually interviewing you on a podcast, but it was a really nice bunch of people. It was a fun time. So yeah, I would definitely recommend if you are free on a Wednesday at five, come along and have tea with Aisha. Thank you. We started that at the beginning of COVID when I reached out to my community and said, you know, would you like to meet once a week so that we can design our lives through COVID? And there was a big resounding yes. And so we started doing that. And now I think the one you came to, it was number 131. Wow. It's been going on strong. And the idea is 
Like I teach people through my seminars and workshops and talks and books, how to design their life and now how to design their long life. And then the virtual tea is a way for us to collaborate and practice in person, in person yeah. online. It was a fun evening. So thank you, Aisha. But talking about your design process, I really like this whole idea of deconstruction and reconstruction, and especially this whole idea of breaking down your preconceptions and shifting perspective. Because I think sometimes in life, people are so wedded to their beliefs, but it's only when they break things down that you can get this new perspective. Can you talk a bit more about this? Because I just love that. Absolutely. So deconstruction, reconstruction is my process. And it was an intuitive, internalized process that I had a chance to externalize. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested to try and externalize their intellectual process or creative process. It's like taking a journey into your own brain and trying to catch yourself in moments of where you have ideas. I realized that Whenever I have a project or a problem to solve, and so you mentioned I design products, everything from toilet seats to, you know, office systems to concept cars, there's always this sense of like, where am I going to start? And the best way for me to start is to deconstruct it and to say, well, what is this thing made up of? And as soon as you start thinking about the parts and you realize, you know, you can make this list or visual list. You've already started, so you feel good, like, okay, now I've entered the subject, so you don't worry about how am I going to start. So it's a very useful entry point. And when you think of the parts of something, the parts are more feasible. So it also makes it easier for you to think about, instead of this big, massive whole, what it's made up of. And then to your point, it breaks the links that we assume are between things. So a simple example is when I was designing a toilet seat for Toto, I realized we always talk about toilet seat, toilet seat, those two things go together. I divided them and thought, hold on, it's a toilet and a seat. And then that idea of it's a seat <laughs> totally changed my perspective that it is a chair with a hole in it. Therefore, it needs to be ergonomically sound. It has to be comfortable and it has to be large enough for for somebody to sit in. And what does that mean? And that even that simple deconstruction, that's how it changes your perspective on things. And then once you start to think differently about the same things, that's the second step, which is point of view. And then the third step is reconstruction. So putting it back together now that you've done you know, your work around inspiration and ideation, Reconstruction is putting it back together, knowing you can't have everything. So what are the things you're going to choose? And then the expression is, how are you going to give it form? Is it a little model? Is it a full-scale model? Is it a strategy? Is it a song? You name it. So the expression could be many different things. No, I just love that. And it's funny when you talk about this whole reconstruction, deconstruction thing that, say with this podcast, when I was initially thinking about doing it, I had no idea about the mechanics, the technicalities or whatever, but I simply thought, okay, a podcast is simply an interview with a guest. So as long as I focus on that, that's the key thing. So you can record an interview over Zoom, but then you need to find the guest. So I think if you focus on what is important, find the guest, figure out the recording process, and then pretty much everything else, how you distribute it, the design of the logo, the name, sure, they're important. 
but fundamentally break it down into what is really important. Put most of your time in that, and then the rest will take care of itself. That's a great point. You're making me think it's a conversation. Yeah. And then the rest, you can then think about what kind of conversation. You know, there are many different kinds of conversation. And then, like you said, it's a conversation with a guest. Well, then who are the guests? And yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the process that you go through. You could be inspired by a certain kind of conversation, and that could totally shift the, the dynamic, the setup. And it's really interesting. Yeah. You made me think there about the actual conversation because I like to be sort of overprepared to really know the guests as much as I can. Because I think when you have a lot of information, then you're not thinking too hard about the questions, but stuff just comes up from your subconscious. And obviously this is an informative conversation, but you need to have chemistry with your guests. They need to be happy. And I think that very much comes across yeah, in the podcast. If you can, yeah, hopefully you're having a good time. I'm certainly having a good time, Aishan. And that makes our listeners feel better as well. Absolutely. And like you showing up at my virtual tea, Harsha, was like a beautiful starting point. So we actually started our friendship and our conversation, right? Thanks to you before we even started this podcast. And I think those are things that make the experience special. Yeah, it's interesting. I think talking about friends. One of the topics of the tea was building friendships. And it's really interesting how sometimes people sort of later on in life, you're not at school, so you're not catching up with people all the time. And if you're not in the office, then you don't have that natural interaction. So some people find it difficult to make new friends. So I, I quite enjoyed the focus of that discussion on Wednesday. Yeah, that's something that I've been paying a lot more attention to. There is a loneliness epidemic, especially post-COVID, that's become very important. And friendship is one of the pillars of my new book, Design the Long Life You Love. So I feel like we know a lot more about it than we did before. And I can show people how to make friends. That's becoming something that I'm spending more time talking about because I think there are a lot of people need it. It's a lifeline. You know, it makes you healthier. It helps with giving you a sense of purpose. It helps you with your memory. And it's free. That's the, the most beautiful thing about friendship is it's priceless and it's free. But it's interesting because I think it's a lot easier than sometimes people think it is. I mean, look, obviously, deep friendship does take years. But actually, if you have a, a shared interest, say, personal development or design or film or you know, music. And then you sort of go into those circles with people who have similar interests, then at least you have one thing in common. Robert Cialdini, the psychologist, he talks about you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, try to figure out do you have any commonalities. You know, did you go to the same university? Do you like tennis? Whatever it is. And I think sometimes in life, it's really about trying to figure out what we have in common and then building from that. No, absolutely. So one of the things that for me, I'm an introvert. So that changed everything around friendship is, and turned me into an extrovert. <laughs> Going into any new environment and thinking, I'm here to make friends. You know, what if I meet my best new friends? There's no way of knowing. So that perspective and intentionality has changed everything for me. And I actually tell people that. So I go to a conference and I speak, for example, and I'll say, you know, I'm here to find my best new friends. And people come and talk to me afterwards. And I found that attitude 
in what you're describing, finding a common interest, for example, is all about curiosity. And so getting out of your mind, and for me at least, instead of thinking, I'm shy, I'm timid, I want to go home, I want to read my book. My new thinking is, I'm interested in you. I'm curious. Who are you? Tell me something I don't know. That shift in perspective reframes the friendship idea. No, I just love that. And I, I actually, we're quite similar, Aisha, because I'm an introvert as well, but I've managed to become more extrovert. I mean, clearly hosting a podcast or you know, doing these things, <laughs> you, you can't. You Definitely be quiet, but yeah, it is really interesting that whole idea of reframing it and saying going to an event, it's not a threat, it's actually an opportunity to have a conversation. And I think sometimes people go to these events with these unrealistic expectations about what they'll achieve that maybe they'll get their new job or meet the love of their life. Actually, if you just have one interesting conversation, then that's a win. I totally agree. And it's, you know, one of the things that we found from our research was that love is found since you mentioned love, but friendships are made. So there is an intentionality to that, that love is more like a luck thing. But here, you know, when it comes to friendships, that there are certain ingredients that allow us to, to build friends. And those are being in the same space together. So shared space, shared time and shared interests. And if you can align those three things, and then in addition to that, have something that accelerates trust. And so what are the things that accelerate trust? If you're at a conference and that conference is gathering interesting people, it has a name, that, that accelerates trust. If a friend introduces you, or it's a friend of a friend, that accelerates trust. Like how you and I got introduced, right? Or oh, a friend of mine trusted you, so now I can trust you. Yeah. Like, who, who do we have in common or interest in common? And boom. I think that's a great lesson for people. But it also does mean that you need to be very mindful of if you're interacting with certain people and then they are giving you know, almost their stamp of approval so that other people connect with you. You need to make sure that you act and behave in a particular way because you know, trust is it's, you know, sometimes easy to earn, but it's also very easy to lose if you're not behaving well at all. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. I think most people have the intention of being trustworthy and good people. Maybe it's because I've worked in finance that you have to be very careful <laughs> yeah. who you're dealing with. But I don't think it's just finance. I think sometimes in life there are people do maybe take advantage of other people, but that, that's another story. So. so it's interesting because part of that is connecting with your own values and then finding people who have similar values to you. For somebody else, I'm just thinking creatively here. We, one of my tools is wrong thinking. It helps you think about things differently and breaks your preconceptions. But for some people, their values might be finding other you know, people like themselves that are not honest or trustworthy. From that, if we can backtrack from the wrong idea to the right idea, it would be like reading and finding people with similar values to yours. Like you and I have similar values. The people who come to the virtual tea have similar values. And one of the things that I do is I often talk about the principles of thinking like a designer, and that is optimism which helps you get over your fears. Believing that you're onto something is very helpful. Empathy, being able to 
find and feel somebody else's pain. An open mind, working collaboratively and helping other people and each other and being playful and thinking holistically. So these are things that when I go into, let's say, into the virtual tea, these become principles that help people self-select. So if you don't have empathy or you're not optimistic or you're not interested in collaboration, chances are you're not going to come to the next tea. And if you do come, it's because you believe in these values. And then that creates a strong community. I just love that point. I think that sort of brings us very nicely on to, obviously, your new book, Design the Long Life You Love. Yeah, really enjoyed reading it. Loved the illustrations and things, especially that rabbit, the tied up. <laughs> yeah, the, the long ears. Exactly. Can you tell our listeners what's it about and what inspired you to, to write it? First of all, I think I should say I drew it. So I draw my books first and then I write about what I illustrated. So that, that's why there are all these drawings in the book, because I'm a visual thinker. And a picture is worth a thousand words. So I try to distill what I learned into a drawing. From that drawing, go back to like, here's what this means. Like the playful rabbit in the book that you're referring to is a little trigger or a reminder that thinking playfully when we're creative is really important. Actually, thinking playfully is important for all of us, especially when we're thinking about serious things. Then we're like kids. We're not afraid of making mistakes. So we can entertain different ideas. So that's the rabbit with the long ears. So Design the Long Life You Love is a book that I didn't think of it as a book first, but we had this beautiful year-long grant to work with people who were 65 to 90. And the goal of the grant was to change how we think about aging and reframe aging as an opportunity rather than a lost opportunity. Most people, especially in the States, I don't know about the UK, revere young people and, and aging is something that people are frightened by. So my goal is in writing this book and in doing the research was to show people we have the gift of life and it's a huge opportunity. And what are we going to do with that extra time? Yeah, I, I love that point you make. And it's funny, it's something that just struck me now. I think maybe it's because we are afraid of dying. And if you see old people that maybe. It reminds you that your time is passing. And, and it's funny, actually, because if you think about it, that's one of the few ine inevitabilities of life, like death and taxes, that we are going to die one day. And if you put it in, the, say, the terms of, say, from now, I have this many years left to live, you actually want to make use of every single hour and day and be much more intentional. And in, in a way, it's sort of fooling ourselves, thinking that's not going to happen. Now, you know, as a designer, I love deadlines. Life has a deadline yeah. and deadline helps you get to action. And one of the things that I learned from a friend of mine, John Maida, we were speaking at the same conference and he said there was a study that was done with people who were dying about their biggest regrets. And number one regret of the dying is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not what others expected of me. And I thought that's the most beautiful definition of why designing your life is important. Living a life true to yourself. That's what designing your life is. And so I think those things, knowing that we're not here forever is very useful in inspiring us to do 
what's important to us now. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point because it's almost like reframing things saying, look, okay, time is precious. I'm not saying we don't need some money. Obviously, we have to pay the bills. You have to eat, et cetera, et cetera. But why not try and do something which is meaningful and gives you joy and you're creating something? I mean, say with this podcast, there's no money in podcasting. So if you're thinking about doing it, don't do it if you're doing it for the money. But actually, what I found is by doing the podcast, I've created something. And whether it's good or bad, yeah, that's up to the, the, the public and the listeners. But I've certainly got a lot of enjoyment out of it. I've met amazing people like you. There's no way two years ago that I would have been able to connect with you before starting on this journey. There's so much knowledge also you're getting. And it's also been a, a great deal of fun. Absolutely. And what you just said is part of the lessons in my book. One of the things we learn from older people is make time for what you love and care less about what other people think, because that really can hold us down. And we don't really know what other people think. What's important is starting something new. And with that, another lesson is accepting that all great projects are ambiguous at the start. And this is something that I've learned from a dear friend of mine, Michael Bangay Stainier, who has a book called How to Begin. I interviewed him for my book, and he talks about a lot of us expect to have the Google Maps of projects. What's going to happen if I do this now? There is no Google Maps for projects. So the best way you could do it is you work on it for a couple of weeks. You see it kind of like what you've done with your podcast. You do a test and then did it work? Like, and then you refine it and then you go for another little bit. To me, that's what the design process is also all about, is you have an idea, you express it, you bring it to life, you test it, you refine it, you test it again. That's what we do. I like the whole idea of getting the feedback because I don't think you should be too focused on popularity, but it is helpful to think about who your audience is. And I think you talked about co-designing things. And I think that's really important because ultimately, if you're trying to create something for a particular audience, and either they don't get it or they don't like it, then that's not very helpful. So actually working together on a project is a great idea. So I love what you were talking about, this whole co-design thing. Absolutely. So the co-design is something that we started doing. Co-design means creating together with somebody else. And this could be your client. It could be your end user. It could be your collaborators. But what we do is we take our toolkit and design process, which is very accessible, and share it with end users so that our clients can understand how does the end user think when they're thinking creatively? How do they imagine the future based on what they know today? And so we've done co-design around everything from like laundry to electric vehicles, to luxury. And then aging was one of those things that where we wanted to co-design aging with older people. And that completely changed our thinking around what it means to have a long life. And that is the beauty of co-design because most traditional research, like qualitative research is either observational or interview. And when you interview people, they tell you about their problems. When you co-design with people, they tell you their solutions. And that's the, the beauty of it. I just love that. The other two nice themes that coming out of the book I found was this whole idea of optimism. And I just love the fact that you, you wake up every day a pessimist. And actually, I lean towards that, Aisha. So I, 
I totally understand where that's coming from. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that, how you managed to change things? I love that question. I always talk about being an optimist is important and how when you're an optimist, you can move forward without fear. But then I realized one, one day I had an aha and the aha was I actually wake up a pessimist. So, you know, I'm claiming that I'm an optimist, but I am through and through a pessimist, at least when I wake up. And I realized that what turned me into an optimist was design process. It's my profession because design is all about solving problems. And when you solve problems, you become an optimist because you realize problems are there to be solved. And if there are no problems, you can't be a designer. And I love being a designer. So therefore, I love problems. And that's what makes me an optimist. And furthermore, I realized that's what I teach people is when I teach someone, here's a design process and here's my toolkit. Here's how you could use it for your life, for your work, or for any topic, subset of your life and work. I'm really teaching them to solve problems. And that teaches you how to become an optimist. I think that's a really interesting point that you make that especially going forward in life, in the world, things are so much more uncertain than they were. You don't have that roadmap that you did. Like you go to university, you work for a few years, you get married. Things are much more uncertain. And I think life is now going to be much more about solving problems and work is going to be about solving problems. So I think that point you make about optimism and almost using that as a driving force to solve problems, resolve challenges, I think that's going to be key. Absolutely. And there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty today that we all need to be problem solvers. And in fact, my two kids are, I have two daughters and they're 18 and 19. And then I have a stepson who's in his 30s. And I realized that when Bibi and I, my husband and I, when we were growing up, there was a roadmap that our parents gave us. And now we want to give that same roadmap to our kids. And the roadmap, you know, I'm sure everybody knows it. It's quite simple. Like you go to school, do well, get a good job, get married, have kids and, you know, retire. <laughs> First of all, that whole idea of retirement is out the door, even for us in, in a good way. Like I think that whether it's working or not, we, we have more time to live. So we're not retiring. We're like re-energizing for those 20, 30 years. And for our kids, there, there's so much that is now different, you know, from your gender identity to whether you go to school or not. There are so many more choices. So all that to say, traditional roadmaps don't work. We need to create our own original roadmap. And to me, that's all about designing your life and work and thinking about it creatively and playfully. It's also about taking control of your own destiny in a way that you know, rather than allowing life to happen, if you are on the front foot and really thinking, you know, what's going on? How can I firstly understand myself, understand my talents, understand the world? and then try to figure out how I can parlay that into making some money or having a, a meaningful career. Is that probably your thinking? It is. And you know, you're making me think of something that I was asked this week that I didn't expect. It's the lucky girl syndrome. I don't know if you've heard about it. And it's about having these intentions, like positive thinking and making it happen. And they, they were asking me like, what do you think about that? And I thought to myself, why not? Like have positive intentions. Great. But how are you going to figure out what to have positive intentions about? And that's where giving yourself permission and a process to think about, 
okay, I have a dream, but what are you dreaming about? And then you're excited and you want to make it happen and your positivity and your energy will draw other people in. But visualizing your future based on what you know today, that's where the creativity kicks in. And you need a process. You need tools. You know, I just love that point. I once came across this scientist who was talking about when you're looking at the creative process, if you're on the inside, you're just taking the next logical step. But if you're somebody looking from the outside, you're thinking, wow, these are huge leaps. And there's a difference between you and the outside world. But if you are taking these next steps, then it's not such a big leap. You know, you're reminding me of something that I had read in one of David Brooks' books about playing the game, that great tennis champions, what they try and do is be in the moment and play the game and not think about, am I winning this game? And that was a great lesson to me because we do get worried about what's this going to lead to? Like, am I going to be famous? Am I going to be rich? And, and this is for me as well. Like, I think we all have this, what another friend of mine calls mental chatter that takes us out of what we're doing today. So when I have thoughts like that, I'm like, I say, just play your game, like do your drawing and <laughs> show up for the podcast that Harsha is doing, all these things. So just stay in the moment. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's that cliche about trust the process, focus on the process. But actually, if you do that and you really are intentional and you put the work in, I think that's where the magic will happen. And then you'll make the connections, you make the collaboration. And it's funny, I didn't think I was a creative person at all. But just by doing the work and just by doing one small thing, loads of ideas are, are coming to me. I'm not really doing anything that special, I think. Well, I think that you are doing something that you love and that changes everything, you know? Sure. And then that comes through. Cool. And, and actually, one, one other thing that I got in the book was this whole idea of collaboration. And I do love that the two of us, we're collaborating on this podcast. We're trying to create this story that hopefully people will like. But I do think that in, in life, if you can collaborate with other people, getting different perspectives, that is so important. I'm so glad that you're bringing us to, to that. Just the way you and I are collaborating and it's the beginning of a friendship. I often talk about, I want to work with my friends and become friends with my collaborators. And collaboration is really helping each other. While we were doing our research, this came up. And I learned that a lot of people don't like to ask for help. But when you ask for help, you're actually opening the door to the other person to ask you for help. So you're doing them a favor and they realize, first of all, I can help someone, but then now maybe I can ask them for help. And that creates a reciprocity. And in design, we call that collaboration. So I love the idea of just telling people, if you need help, just think about it as a collaboration. And it's reciprocal. It's not a one-way street. And that builds a sense of learning from each other, helping each other. And it truly leads to one plus one equals three. And it's my favorite way of getting unstuck is like, I'm stuck. Let me ask someone and collaborate. Yeah, and I do think that sometimes that uh, you know, we are afraid to ask somebody for help. But actually, if you do, most people are willing to help if they can. If it's half an hour or an hour or maybe an introduction to somebody, they're quite happy to do that. So one other thing, actually, I really liked your TEDx talk, the, the most recent one. So I think for our listeners, if you want a summary of a lot of the ideas in Aisha's book, that's a really helpful talk. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. But are there any other points from the book we've missed, which may be helpful for our, our listeners? 
I think there are many of them. I think the best way is for your listeners to... You know, Buy the book. <laughs> I was going to say, how can I say this? Thank you for saying it. Buy the book and design the long life you love. And the thing about the book is that, as Harsha was saying, it's quite readable in that it's playful, it's full of graphics and illustrations that I've done, but it takes you step-by-step step through this idea of how can you love better, have more purpose, increase your well-being, and have more friends. And it's full of tips that come from our research, but also from experts about, for example, how to manage your regrets or how to make friends, how to find the right person to fall in love with. All, you know, it really is all the things that are important to us. Aisha, it has been so much fun to have you on the show. And I would definitely recommend all our listeners to watch your TED Talk, look at your work, and obviously buy the book. All your contact details, social media and stuff, they're in the show notes. But you're on... Oh, you're on LinkedIn, you've got a website, and you're happy for people to, to reach out to you there, Aisha. Absolutely. And they can reach me on LinkedIn, and they can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at AishaBirsel.com. If they go to AishaBirsel.com, they'll have a little thing that pops up and says, do you want to subscribe to her newsletter? Say yes, because then you'll get news about what I'm doing, and then the virtual tea invitation and all those good things. Fantastic. And one final thing, Aisha, I'd like to offer my guests the chance to give a shout out to somebody who's helped them in their life or their career. Is there anybody in particular you'd like to mention? So many to name. This is the first one that comes to mind. There are so many. <laughs> well, your um, husband? Yeah, definitely. I'm yes. glad that you're, you're mentioning that. I mean, <laughs> what I love about having daughters who are now teenagers is that they're my biggest helpers where we can talk and and it is a collaboration and the other person that jumps up in my head is Gene Early who's my coach and mentor so he comes to mind and then Marshall Goldsmith who's also my role model and these are all people who help me think better and find ways to improve myself that's a great thought that even if somebody like yourself who's achieved so much has that learning mindset and wants to get better and I do think in life you may not get to exactly where you want to get to but if you aspire to improve just a little bit every day then you will get better and I think that's the the main thing don't compare yourself to other people compare yourself to last week or last month or last year yesterday yeah yesterday cool you know I mentioned Marshall Goldsmith and he's in the book as well and he has this amazing practice, a daily practice of, have I tried my best? It doesn't mean that you are at your best. It's trying to get there. Have I tried my best? And that I find that asking that question every day is incredibly helpful. Fantastic. That's a great note to end on, Aisha. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It's been so much fun. Have a great rest of the day and weekend. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for inviting me. The no. beginning of our friendship. Yes. Take care, Aisha. Bye-bye. Thank you, Harsha. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.